we're talking about the Lord's Prayer, uh, starting with Hallowed Be Thy Name on question 172. Um, it's this, uh, the, if you read a Hebrew copy, you'll see the Hebrew word yod Hey vav Hey, and above that are the, the, the vowels uh, for Adonai instead of that word. And the reason is that they pronounce Adonai as you're reading it. Um, and so it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a very holy word, but when, when Jesus uses it in the prayer, he says, hallowed be thy name. And so he truly keeps the name of the Lord holy. Um, this name means that he alone is truly God. He is the source of his own being. He is holy and just, and he cannot be defined by his creatures. Um, because God can't be defined by his creatures, we define him in the way he wants us to define him. And, and as we see as Christians, uh, Jesus tells us uh, to call upon God as our Father and calls upon us uh, to, to hallow the name of God uh, uh, in our daily speech. Um, question 174, what are some other names for God given in Scripture? Throughout the Scriptures, God is known as Lord. Through the person and ministry of Jesus Christ, God is also revealed to be one God in three persons the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We've already in this course spent a good amount of time on the Trinity, so I'm not going to rehash it here, but this is the revelation of the name of God given um, by Jesus Christ, uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, it is also important that we remember that uh, all of us, if you're baptized, we're baptized in what? At the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. You're baptized into the Trinity. Um, and it's the life of the Trinity which is the Christian life. Um, this word Lord is also incredibly important in Scripture. Um, remember that, that Paul uh, uh, constantly calls reference, and especially in Philippians, you know, it speaks of how every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Uh, it's, it's, it's to say that, uh, that um, the, the Lordship of Jesus is absolute and, uh, and uh, can have no rival. Um, and so, so we use that word Lord as well in a holy way. What does hallowed mean? Hallowed means to be treated as holy, set apart, sacred, and glorified. Um, this is to say that um, when we, uh, we both, we both, we, we're both, do, we're doing two things here. We're saying that we're hallowing the name of God. We also ask that his name would be hallowed in the world. Um, and that simply means that this name is, is treated as holy. Um, and it's quite amazing, you know, that, that there's not a whole lot of middle ground on this. Either the name of God is used in a holy way or in a profane way. <laughs> um, you know, you can't just sort of be flippant about it and say, well, you know, uh, and people just don't do this. Um, but it's, it's to say that, uh, that uh, we, we ask that God's name would be, would be hallowed in us. How does God hallow his name? God's name is holy in itself, and God glorifies his name by saving fallen humanity, by building his church, and by establishing his kingdom in the world and in the age to come. You go back to that wonderful text in, in Philippians. Um, God is about this work of, of making his name holy in all the world um, until every knee should bow at this name. Um, if you read Revelation as well, you'll see that the very tail end, uh, the, the, the people of God are marked with the name of God. Um, and uh, so it is to say that, that uh, we, what we look forward to is that, is that name being uh, proclaimed in all the world. Um, God is glorified in his name uh, when people call upon him by his name. How can you hallow God's name? 
I can honor God's name as holy by worshiping him, serving others, and living in loving obedience as his child and a citizen of his kingdom. I love how this is answered. It's not answered by being careful in my speech and not saying things I ought not say and not using uh, profanity and vulgarity. What's the answer here? It has nothing to do. It has very little to do with speech. We actually hallow God's name within our lives um, by first through worship. This is so important, too. It's one of the great heritages that we have as Anglicans is that um, worship is not just sort of like, well, you know, just worship God in your own way. How well has that gone in human history? Oh, come on. Moses comes down from Mount Sinai, and what are they doing? <laughs> They're worshiping a golden calf. <laughs> um, you know, and there's, the Old Testament is replete with examples of people who just said, well, I'm just going to boldly march up to the altar and do my thing, and, uh, <laughs> and it doesn't go well. Um, uh, we rely upon these set and reliable forms of worship in, in the liturgy to instruct us and to, and to form us in that way. Um, and they, they indeed actually wind up transforming us. Uh, because if we were honest about it and we just sort of showed up and, and said, well, what kind of worship should I offer God this morning? How well would that go? I mean, if, if you were in charge, of, if I was in charge of the liturgy, how well would that go? I'd be like, uh, let's try this today. I, I, I would not know. Um, there's also something really wonderful, and I've been meditating on this race recently, uh, and I, I think it's a great good. Um, do any of you coming to Christ Church on a Sunday morning feel like you're entering an unreliable place where you might get browbeaten or abused? You pretty much know what's going to happen, right? There's none of this like, you never know what might happen at that place. You never know what things you might be asked to pray for. You never, you never know what things, what things you might be asked to sing. Um, there's reliability. But what does that build? Over time, it builds trust. Um, and, and trust is important because what, what's happening in the liturgy is our, our, our lives are being formed to trust God fully. Um, and if the very place in which we're formed for that trust is a place of, uh, of chaos, what happens? It just goes down in flames. Uh, so it's a very important thing, and, uh, and I say this especially as we're going to enter into some liturgical change for Lent, uh, and, and many people enjoy it, and many people are like, uh, when can we go back to the way it was last week? Like, it's, but it's still, nonetheless, uh, very helpful. Um, worship is the first way that we hallow God's name. Uh, remember, the very first thing we say in the liturgy is what? On a Sunday morning. I hope you don't get it right. You know, the, I hope you don't get it wrong that the announcements are the first word of the liturgy, not formally, right? It's not, hello, I'm Father Nelson, good morning. Blah. No, it's not that. What is it? Blessed be God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, this has been a common feature in Christian liturgy for 1,700 years plus where the very first thing that happens in Christian liturgy is God's name is hallowed. Um, it's not welcome. Uh, it's not, uh, you know, please be seated. It's not, uh, it's not would you please join me? Uh, it's not good morning, how are you? Uh, it, it can't be. We, and, and you'll note also the position of, of the clergy as we face the altar, right? We're, 
in, in liturgical orientation, now, we all know that by a compass we're facing south. But, you, you know, when you enter into sacred space, those kinds of things should just disappear, right? Churches have traditionally been, fa been built facing east. Um, and it's not because we're facing God in the east or because we're facing Jerusalem or something like that. It's that we wait for the coming of Christ as the rising sun, which rises in the east. <laughs> so liturgically, anyway, we're, we're facing east. And, and I love that we have this image of the resurrection, this, this image not only of, of Jesus' resurrection um, uh, so long ago, but, but, uh, but it's meant to be evocative of this second coming. Um, uh, it's, 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 it's almost like it's the resurrection and the ascension in one moment. Um, and that's intentional. Um, so when we turn to God in prayer, um, and when, when, uh, when the first words out of my mouth as the celebrant are, blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're sending a signal that worship is about God, that there's someone else in the room. Um, and, and it's not just all about us and how we feel. Serving others. You remember the first, the, later in the liturgy, the very first time I turn to you, I say, what? Hear what our Lord Jesus Christ says. You shall love the Lord to God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And this is the first and great commandment. The second is like unto it. You got all that, right? Um, it's to say that uh, what we do in the liturgy is not only to love God and worship Him, but also to love our neighbor. How often is that lost in Christian worship today? that one of the callings of the church in worship is to love our neighbor, and not just the people who are sitting next to us, but to love our neighbor enough to pray for our neighbor, uh, to love our neighbor enough to sacrifice uh, for our neighbor, to love our neighbor enough to fast for our neighbor, to love our neighbor enough uh, to, um, to um, in a sense, even come in here. And, and I've known people through the years who have done this, and I've, I've done this several times myself, you know, at, at various points in my life where I'll say, you know, Lord, whatever grace I receive today, I, I don't want it for myself. I want it for so-and-so. <laughs> that can be done. Um, to enter into that kind of uh, uh, vicarious life on behalf of another. So we, this is important. We learn to love God, and we learn to love our neighbor in the liturgy. Isn't that that's a kind of a wonderful thought, isn't it? Because, because it's so, in, that, in one sense, it's very straightforward, Right? Um, you're not going to be asked to do anything like, you know, give your neighbor a hug. <laughs> like, no. <laughs> now, you might, but, but, but the calling is, is much deeper than that. It's, it's to pray for your neighbor, to worship on behalf of your neighbor. That's why Christian liturgy is not just the work of the people, it's work for the people. Um, we still write on Waco uh, owned vehicles like trucks and water department. What does it say on the side of the thing? It says public works. That's actually the carryover from the, from the uh, Greek word laetorgia, um, work of the people, uh, work of the publios. I don't know, my, my old Latin is lost today. But it's, it's work of the public, right? Um, and, uh, and it's done on behalf of the public. Um, you and I are not asked to go dig for uh, sewer lines, right? We're not asked to uh, take our trash to the dump, although some people do. Uh, it's done on behalf of the public. And the church has understood that her work is on behalf of the world. Um, so this is a, a wonderful place to begin that. Um, 
even when others do not hallow the name of God, it is the calling of the church to hallow the name of God on behalf of the world. Um, living in loving obedience as his child and a citizen of his kingdom. Um, what, we, what we do, uh, and I don't want to call too much attention to the liturgy, but it's important as we enter into this time of talking about prayer that we do that. Um, we practice what it means uh, to be members and citizens of a new kingdom within the body of the church. Um, because because this is the thing that often gets lost in the shuffle. It's like, on the day that I die, I will be, and I believe this, you know, you'll be made fit for heaven, right? Yeah? I hope so, yeah? I, I would hope that there would be something to do that, right? We know that, we know that, I don't, I don't want to. I don't want to go to heaven like I am, right? I would like God to do something about me. Uh, but but think about it. That you don't have to wait for that day. You can start now, preparing uh, for that. So we live out this obedience as a child and citizen of God's kingdom. All right, Thy kingdom come. What is the second petition? The second petition is Thy kingdom come. What is God's kingdom? The kingdom of God is the just and peaceful reign of Jesus Christ over all the world, especially in the lives of his faithful people through the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. Um, Jesus goes about in the, uh, in the opening, uh, especially if you look at Mark's gospel is the most you know, kind of overt mention of this. Jesus goes about Galilee. What does he do? What's, what's the message he's proclaiming? Yeah, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's not like, uh, hey, y'all, I'm going to die for you in a few years, so that's coming. Get ready for that. Uh, it's, not, uh, it's not, hey, who wants to go to heaven when they die? Right? What's the message? It's the message of the kingdom being here with you, at hand. Um, at hand means where? Like, don't have to move, can reach out, grab it, and pull it to you, right? Um, this, is, this is the language that's there. Um, this is the reign of Jesus Christ. This gets so lost in the shuffle. Um, when we read the Christmas stories, what do we think about? Oh, such a sweet little baby Jesus. We love the baby Jesus, don't we? And we all do, right? And, and that's important, and, and it's there. But what's going on in the story? This is why Herod comes in almost immediately. Because what's the story? Yeah, a king has been born, and you ain't the king anymore, Herod. And you never really were to begin with, right? It's this, it's this unseating of kingly power that goes on in the gospel. Um, and not just of Herod, but of every king. Um, Jesus' birth in Bethlehem of Judea is a threat to Caesar as much as it is to Herod. That's why Caesar is mentioned in the story, right? Um, and, and I should say this as well, that, uh, that uh, Jesus is Lord even over the President of the United States, um, even over any earthly power that has been established ever at all time. Okay. Um, well, what does this mean for us? I love what C.S. Lewis says about this. He says, we're part of a rebellion. Um, and that's true. 
that the kingdom is a rebellion. It's begun in Jesus Christ, it continues on in his church, and it is a rebellion against uh, all the powers that are, uh, that are vying for that attention in this world. Um, we exercise the kingdom, and in fact, we carry out the kingdom uh, through the life of faith by living lives of faithfulness and obedience, but we also live the life of the kingdom through uh, the, the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, this work of the kingdom is not something that you and I have natural uh, equipment for. Um, Christians have always taught that in our natural uh, uh, in our natural life, or our natural ability, or who we are as, as beings within nature, um, we, we do not have it in us uh, to do good. We were just reading in the daily office yesterday, Romans chapter 7, where, where Paul says what? The very thing I want to do, I cannot do. I, he says, I find it to be a law. Um, and it, and this, this has always been understood by the Christian tradition to mean that, that apart from grace, what are we? Nothing. We can do nothing good. This is reflected in the in the liturgy, um, as we say, uh, especially in morning prayer and the confession. We say, "Apart from your grace, there is no health in us, and we can't heal ourselves." Um, and so we ask for the gifts of the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon us uh, for the work of the kingdom. When you pray for God's kingdom to come, what are you asking? I pray that the whole creation may be renewed and restored under its rightful Lord now in part and fully in the age to come. So one of the things that I talked about early on was we were planting Christ churches. I said one of the reasons that we plant churches is to establish Christ's kingdom where it does not yet exist. Um, and I loved that we were in an old break shop, you know, and, and sort of being there on Sunday mornings was like, we're just, you know, you think like Waco is one of the most church cities that you could imagine in most people's imaginations, and yet not so much. Um, and, and to, to be taking this, you know, of course, it's all your classical school, you know, so what more could you want? But yes, there's more that you could want. And we, and we were praying weekly in this break shop, this what used to be a break shop. Um, here, you know, we see that uh, the, church had, the church that had used this building for so many years was in freefall decline. And to be able to come into this neighborhood and, and establish the kingdom in this place. Um, and not only that, but, you know, when you move into a new home in a neighborhood, what are you doing when you do that? This is why we bless houses during Epiphany. You're taking ground, right? You're, you're taking ground for the kingdom. Um, when you go to a new job, when you go to your cubicle, if you is anybody in here so unfortunate as to have a cubicle? Sorry, okay. Well, one is, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, when you go into that space, uh, you're, you're taking ground for the kingdom. Uh, this is how it is to be. Why? Because here's, here's the thing that Christians believe about creation. Creation has an ultimate end, and the ultimate end is to be uh, the temple within which God's church worships for all eternity, um, which is lovely, right? You sort of think, that's oh, going to be just a wonderful thing. Um, and, and occasionally, and this is important as well, occasionally we lose some ground, but we do believe that at the end of time, all of it will be retaken. How does God's kingdom come? God's kingdom is announced to the people of Israel, arrives in Jesus Christ, and advances through the church's mission. It will appear in its fullness once Christ returns in glory. God's kingdom is announced 
to the people of Israel. How is it announced? Every day. Every day. If you're a Jew, five times a day, what do you do? Hero Israel, right? Shemai, Israel. It's a constant recitation. Um, and what you do is you remember that, the, that, uh, uh, that God is Lord. Um, and, uh, and it's proclaimed daily. Um, uh, it's the very beginning of the law. Hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. Um, and this proclamation, you know, it seems very strange to us uh, as, as uh, modern people who are not used to anyone being left out. We don't like anyone being left out. Uh, but that God would, would reveal himself exclusively to one nation uh, seems very unfair. <laughs> say, well, that doesn't make sense. But, but think about why you would do that. You've got to start somewhere, right? Um, and this is, this is how it begins. Uh, so, so the the gospel actually hinges on Israel's place within within uh, within this story. It arrives in Jesus Christ and advances through the church's mission. It will appear in fullness in its fullness once Christ returns in glory. This is what we wait for. This is what we look forward to, and indeed, it's what we pray for in the Lord's prayer. As many times as we pray it, we pray, "Thy kingdom come um, on earth as it is in heaven." How do you live in God's kingdom? As a citizen of God's kingdom, I am called to live in obedience to God's word and will, in loving witness and service to others, and in joyful hope of Christ's return. We've said quite a bit about this thus far, um, but it's just for the sake of repetition. Um, as a citizen of God's kingdom, I'm called to live in obedience to God's word and will. Um, and of course, those two are, are one and the same, yes? Uh, you... you uh, we really need to try to condition ourselves to understand this. How do you know God's will? From His Word, yeah. Um, that, that's the first place, right? Uh, and we, we build everything on top of that. Um, in loving witness and service to others and in joyful hope of Christ's return, uh, we live out this life um, uh, in, in the joy of believing uh, that this is not all there is. Um, that uh, when we go through times of suffering, when we go, when we go through times of hopelessness, uh, struggle, um, and believe me, man, people have struggles, like, like unbelievable struggles. Um, if you sit down and talk to somebody, uh, just, and really, really just, you know, say, tell me about yourself, tell me your story, you know, it, it's a surprising how even young people can have so many deep struggles. And they have victories, too. And sometimes they have complete failures. Um, but it is to say that, that, uh, that um, the Christian works through the struggle and works through suffering, uh, believing that we can be made like Jesus in the midst of that suffering. Um, by the way, I mean, I've said this often in catechesis, but to be made in the image of God means simply this, that you and I were made to be like Jesus. Who is what? As Colossians tells us, the image of the invisible God. Um, so there you have it. What is the third petition? The third petition is, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is God's will? God's will is to reconcile all things to himself in Jesus Christ and to establish his kingdom on the earth. His will is revealed in the whole of Scripture 
and especially in Jesus Christ, whom I am called to serve and imitate with my whole life. Um, we think about God's will in so many ways, but most of the time it's kind of with this idea of like, what's God's will for me? <laughs> and, and, uh, and that's a perfectly good question to ask. You know, all of us will be at some time or another and probably multiple times in life at a vocational crossroads where we wonder, what is God calling me to do, be, uh, think, whatever it may be? Um, and, and simply the fact that you, you know, get the get the job that you'll have for the rest of your life does not mean that you'll be free of vocational struggle <laughs> because we live in a vastly rapidly changing world. Um, most people today will have 30-some-odd jobs in their lives, um, and, and it's, it's an unbelievable struggle to go through that over and over and over again. Um, but listen, that, that struggle for God's will does not end. <laughs> it continues on and on and on, and you might think, well, you know, I'll just, I'll just do this till I retire, and you know, then I won't have anything to worry about. And have you ever met someone who's retired and asked them, what's it like to be retired? Like, I don't know what to do. And people who retire struggle with this question of calling. They really do. Um, so this is a constant thing. Um, the, the best advice that I can give you in the midst of this is understand your will within the broader will of God. Um, not just for you, but for the whole, but for the church, for the world. And God's will is to reconcile all things in Himself. So what's His, call for, what's his, what's his will for you? First, to be reconciled. <laughs> yes? Second, to be what? An agent of reconciliation. Right? Paul talks about the ministry of reconciliation. He's given it to us. Um, and it's to reconcile not things to yourself, right? Uh, but to reconcile all things to uh, himself in Jesus Christ um, and to establish his kingdom on the earth. His will is revealed in the whole of Scripture and especially in Jesus Christ, whom I'm called to serve and imitate with my whole life. Um, as, as Jesus is the image of the invisible God, we learn from this that, uh, that we are to be like Jesus and we know what he's like because we can read of him in the gospel. Go ahead. Reconcile. Uh, yes. Um, it, it means to uh, be with again. Um, it means, um, it doesn't necessarily mean, now this is important, it doesn't necessarily mean, uh, especially if you're being reconciled to someone, right, a person, that, uh, that you'll have the same old relationship you used to have. I mean, in fact, as you, as you, as you go through this over and over again, you say, oh, I hope not. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> like, that would not be a step up. That would be a step backwards. Um, I think often people say, I just want to, I just want to have our friendship back. And, and a lot of times, to be reconciled simply can't mean that. It's got to mean something else. Um, it actually means a change in the relationship. Um, reconciliation among Christians means, uh, first, that, that we exercise repentance towards God. Yes? I mean, how on earth can we, can we be reconciled to each other when we're not being reconciled to God? It doesn't work. Um, so, reconciliation within the church requires that we be reconciled to God um, and that we begin to live according to His will. Um, I'd say further that, that it requires uh, a, kind of, uh, a kind of amnesty. Um, 
I like that word because it means forgetting, right? Now, will you forget the hurts that have been leveled against you really and truly? No. Can you act, though, as if you forgot? Yes, you can. Um, can you act as though the account balance is zero in terms of a debt? Yes, you can. Um, what uh, I love what, uh, what Steve Waters, who's a mem member of Christ Church, and he's a Bible translator, he says in, in Tibetan languages, the, the word for uh, forgive is basically the same as letting a fish off the hook. Right? Like, I could eat you, but I'm not going to. Um, that's at the heart of Christian reconciliation. It's, it, you know, we have that wonderful parable of the, uh, the, the servant who's forgiven a massive debt. I mean, the, the language in Scripture is that it's something like a bajillion dollars. It's beyond all imagination, right, the debt he owes. And then he goes out, and what does he do? He's shaken down other people for 50 bucks, Do you see how that works? So, so the, the, the posture is always to say, we're reconciled to God first. And I think part of the problem, the way many modern Christians think about reconciliation is they think, let's just all be happy together, together again, you know? Let's, let's like just try to be cool, you know? It's can't we all just get along, right? Um, and, and that's a pretty sad vision of reconciliation in this world. Um, reconciliation is worked according to truth and... Um, and if you've read any of those wonderful, you know, there are wonderful accounts of truth and reconciliation in South Africa, for instance. Um, and in Rwanda, it's even more so. They took all the lessons learned and they brought them to bear in Rwanda. Okay, so, so this is what I saw in Rwanda on several visits. Um, I've been there three times so far. Um, you'll have people who live next door to each other who are on opposite sides of the conflict in 1994 who were literally killing each other 20 years ago. And what, do they forget it? No. But what they do is they declare that amnesty. And the way they do it is by telling the truth about what happened. Do you see how it works? And listen, we can have no reconciliation without truth. So that's really important. So I hope that helps. It's just to say that, that, uh, that we have to tell the truth about what's happened. Um, this is often so uh, so difficult when we kind of want to cover over the truth or we don't want to be honest about it or we don't want to be clear about it. And, you know, I, I'll just say uh, one, of the, one of the hardest things for people to bear is when they feel they really know they're being honest about something that's happened that's been unpleasant in their life and that has happened and has raised all kinds of conflict with another person and the other person is just lying through their teeth about the nature of the conflict. They know what happened. They know fully what happened, but they lie. And here's the problem. You can't really have a relationship with someone who lies. Um, you get dragged down into it, it becomes a complete mess, and, and you wind up living in hell. Um, so it's not a good idea. <laughs> and and, and our, our, our society can do the same darn thing, right? When, when we both tell and accept lies on a regular basis and we start to speak those lies, we start to live in hell. I mean, this is why I, I sound like a complete radical in even saying this, but you should. I mean, everyone should read uh, Solzhenitsyn and his accounts of, of, uh, of, of, uh, of Stalinist Russia because he's very clear. He says, you're forced to lie about how things are 
and then you live in hell. And, and, uh, and so um, this is why, I mean, Christians are always, always very cognizant of the need to speak the truth. Um, no matter what the cost, no matter how much people might hate us for it, to speak the truth. And so reconciliation without truth is not worth having, really. Um, and, and I hope you see this, that God's kingdom being established goes hand in hand with the truth being proclaimed. Um, so I hope you see that. Okay, thank you for that question. Um, what do you pray for as you seek God's will? I pray for God to break the dominion of the world, the flesh, and the devil, to establish justice and thwart the plans of the wicked, to strengthen and direct his church, and to extend the kingdom of his grace, to break the dominion of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Uh, this, is not, uh, uh, this is not actually biblical language. You know, this, this phrase, the world, the flesh, and the devil, is not used in Scripture. Uh, it's actually from ancient baptismal rites, where you make three renunciations before you're baptized, and you actually see this when we do baptisms here. You stand... And I always have the parents and godparents turn and face the doors. So you, liturgically, you're facing west, right? Uh, and uh, in some European churches, they would face north when they did this. You know why? You're literally facing the Teutonic barbarians, right? Uh, and, uh, and you renounce them, right? Because what you're doing is you're renouncing darkness. You're renouncing the enemy, okay? So they, they do this. Uh, you, you renounce the world, the flesh, and the devil on the day of your baptism. And the, uh, the understanding is that you will renounce the world, the flesh, and the devil every day of your life. Um, what does it mean to renounce? It's, a way, it's saying, I'm against it. <laughs> I'm set against it. I will work against it. I will make certain, and I will spend my dying breath working against it. That's what it means to be, uh, to be uh, a member of the kingdom who's working uh, for the will of God to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, to establish justice and thwart the plans of the wicked. I will tell you, this is great fun, actually. <laughs> it's great fun. <laughs> uh, I, we used to live uh, on Austin Avenue across the street from a payday lender. And I used to love, I would just walk over there occasionally and talk to people as they were going in and just say, do you know what the interest charges on this, on these loans are? And they would have no idea. I said, do you know what the kind of trap this is? And I'd say, you know, golly, just, what do you need? And they'd say, I just need like 50 bucks to get through the end of the week. And I'd be like, here's a 20. I hope it helps, man. Like, go buy yourself some mac and cheese and get through the end of the week, man. Because it's just, it's just not worth it. Um, and you can thwart this, the evil plans of others all the time. Because here's, here's the lie that the enemy tells. It's always this. You have no other option. This is your only way forward. Um, and, and we as Christians know better uh, that there's always a way out, as James says, uh, that there's always uh, a way to bust through temptation. Um, we can always have it. There's always a door. Um, to establish justice. Um, oh, goodness. So much can be said about justice uh, from the biblical perspective. Um, um, justice, uh, um, justice is, is inextricable 
from the understanding that, that human beings are created in God's image, right? Um, this is what the founding fathers of our country actually were drawing attention to, right? Um, they, they weren't using explicitly Christian language, but they were, they, were, they were following in that tradition, right, of thinking about human beings and who we are. Um, justice means simply uh, that, that, uh, that you're giving others what they deserve. Um, and not meaning what they deserve for their, for their sins so much, although that can occasionally be the case, right? Um, but meaning that they, they receive what they should receive as children of God. Um, I think often we think about justice as punishment, and we really need to start to think about justice in a, in a much greater sense, which is uh, praying that uh, and, and acting so that um, human beings uh, can, can truly flourish. It's an important thing to keep in mind. Um, to strengthen and direct his church. We pray that God will do this. Um, we pray every, every single Sunday that God would direct his church um, and to stir the hearts of his faithful people. Um, and this is often a difficult question, but, you know, how's, you know, it seems so demoralizing at times, especially when you see churches that are just constantly fighting, constantly in struggle, constantly at each other's throats, um, constantly divided. Um, how, do you, how do you pray for that? Well, you pray that, uh, that, that God would rule His church and would, would, uh, would bring us to correction and repentance. Um, and so we ask for that. And to extend the kingdom of His grace, we pray that our neighbors would receive uh, the grace of God uh, as well. How can you do God's will? I can walk in God's will by loving Him and my neighbor and by taking part in the church's mission to extend His kingdom in the world. Again, we're trained in the liturgy, and I say this all the time, we're trained in the liturgy to love God and to love our neighbor. It can seem so uh, invisible that that's the case, but it is absolutely what's going on. Um, I say this, you know, uh, we, we've occasionally had the bubblings of... Uh, of how should I put this? Baby wars in this church, right? What's, what's, the, what's the complaint? I could not believe it this morning. There was a child in church, and the child had the temerity to act like a child, thus disturbing my worship. And, and I often want to say at the doors of the church, no one says this to me directly on a Sunday, thanks be to God, uh, because they know what I'd say. I'd be like, well, thanks be to God that you're not the object of worship. Thanks be to God that he puts us here so that we can love our neighbor as well as him. And those two are not, uh, should not be confused. Right? And, and that's why I say there's a paradox here. It seems like we can't do both things at the same time, and you bloody well can In fact, by loving your neighbor in the pew who's most distressing to you, you love God. I love what C.S. Lewis says this in The Weight of Glory, that outside of the blessed sacrament, there is no object of greater glory than the person sitting next to you. As distressing as they can be, as troubling as they can be, as smelly and as uh, bad-breathed and as uh, off-key in the hymns as they can be, they are the most holy thing you've got. And they might be your kids, um, they might be your neighbor, uh, they might be uh, 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 the sinner that you kind of have to put up with 
uh, they might be the saint you have to put up with. Uh, it might be that it's not that their voice is off key. It might be their voice is so beautiful, it turns you into a mess of jealousy and resentment. Why can't I have a voice like that? My life would be better if I could just sing better, you know. Or, or why can't I be pretty like that? Or why can't I be handsome like that? Or, what, you know, why can't I have a wife or a husband like that? You know, it's just one thing after another. And, and, and it can often enter our minds in worship, Yes. But if we, if we can think for just a moment about how we are called to love our neighbor in the midst of that, do you see what's going on? To, to love our neighbor as distressing or as, uh, as, uh, as uh, tempting to jealousy as they can be. Um, and, and I would say that, in, in the, and I've said this a lot, but in the discussions about the place of babies in, in our church's worship, you can be creative about that, Right? To say, hey, this baby's making a noise. I wonder if his mom would let me hold him. Yeah? I wonder if his mom would let me, like, sit with him so that maybe I can keep some of the kids a little occupied during the service. All great. I wonder if maybe I can go up to that parent after the service and say, I just want you to know that... uh, you know, I'm sure it was distressing to you to have a baby making so much noise in the middle of service, but I just want to tell you what a great job you've done and what a, what a witness you're making to the church. Yeah? We have such an opportunity to build each other up. Um, and I love what Paul says about this to the, to the Corinthians, you know. Since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, what does he say you should do? He says, strive to excel in building up the church. Strive to excel. That means like work hard to outdo everybody else in building up the church. Um, Benedict, this ben, uh, Benedict, the you know founder of the Benedictine order, uh, has a chapter in the Benedictine rule which is called the Good Zeal, and it's about how the monks should. I think it's chapter seventy-four. Uh, they 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 are called to outdo one another in showing good zeal for one another. Like, I just love that. Like, if, if, it's, uh, if, if, if a church can operate like that, the witness we make is so strong. All right, I'm going to keep going so we can finish this out. Um, so loving him and my neighbor, and by taking my part in the church's mission to extend his kingdom in the world. Um, well, let's think about this word mission for a while. It's, it's not really well defined in the catechism, and it probably should have been. Um, but, but think about this. What does Jesus say to the disciples as he sends them? As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. That, that word in the Greek for even so, is actually kathos. It means according to the same way. It's actually the same word where we get Catholic. It's in the same way. Well, how was Jesus sent into the world? Well, yeah, but how? In the flesh. Yeah? So, you know, engaging in nonsensical Facebook arguments is not going to help you right? 
you know, sitting in your office and thinking, God, I wish a you know, pagan would come along so I could evangelize him. It's not going to help you. Right? Um, you go in the flesh uh, to be with people. Um, what, to what end was Jesus sent into the world? It's one of the very first questions in the catechism. What is the gospel? Is Jesus Christ loving and saving lost humanity? I mean, do we love our neighbors enough uh, that we're willing to go to them and willing to, um, to draw them out of the muck of sin and death by the power and grace of Jesus? Are we willing to do that? Um, that's the mission the church is on. It's the same mission that Jesus has, right? To love and save lost humanity. Um, it cannot be extracted. We can't say, well, Jesus has his mission and I have mine. Right? We can't sort of say, the church's mission is just to sort of do a lot of good things and like uh, really help people. It's like, that's way too vague. Way too vague. I think often uh, because we can't, we can't really find unity in the church on the truth, we seek unity in kind of just working together to do good things. And, and you know, I, I guess that's not a bad thing, but, but man, I wish it was more bold and robust than that um, to where we really do believe that we're on the same mission that Jesus was given and called in the same way. That's, that's how we ought to uh, get out of bed in the morning. Why do you pray on earth as it is in heaven? In heaven, God's name is perfectly hallowed and His will is perfectly obeyed and fulfilled. I pray for His kingdom to be established fully and His will to be accomplished on earth, that His name may be perfectly hallowed in all creation. Oh, I love this. You know, again, uh, in the Christian understanding, uh, creation has a final destiny. What did we say it was before? What did I say it was before? To be the sanctuary for the church's worship. Let's just say that strongly and clearly, right? We have this wonderful church building, right? Um, the, the desire of the church and, and what God intends is that all of creation would be like this. Um, and we pray that there would be uh, that the, the distinctions between heaven and earth would fall away. Um, this is what will happen ultimately, um, that, that um, in, a, in a very real sense, you know, the church won't even need walls. <laughs> it won't need anything, you know, stained glass windows uh, through which you can see uh, uh, the, the truth of God, through which you can see Jesus, right? I, I love how we have, like, I love this about, about this old Lutheran church, but we really do have, like, the three most cliched images of Jesus that have ever been put in stained glass. We got them all. The top three. Easy. Good shepherd, Jesus praying in a rock, and Jesus knocking at the door and not, standing at the door and knocking. Those are like the top three, without a doubt. Like they're straight out of a catalog. I'm sure you could find an old catalog from 1914 and they'd be right there. You just say, yep, they're right there. Um, they're important images, sure. Uh, they're inspiring images. Um, very stereotypical, I'd say. Uh, but there will come a day when we don't need images. Why? Because the whole of God's people will not see through a mirror dimly anymore, but will see face to face. Um, on earth as it is in heaven. 
um, the blessed vision of God for all eternity. Um, and, and that is an inexhaustible theme, yes? What I love about that is, you know, the, the image that we have, that we should have of the beatific vision is, 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 is not of a kind of stasis, but of ever-deepening, ever-going deeper and deeper, as Lewis would say, further up and further in into the mysteries of God. Um, and so uh, when we pray on earth as it is in heaven, uh, we remember that, um, that it's that to which we are going. It's that to which we're called. It's that to which we're going as the church. It's that to which creation is going. All right. Um, we'll pick up next week with petition four, I believe.